Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moy Lady McLean, and tonight I'm joined by Ash Saka. I love that Tuesday is now ladies' night. Drinks are half price for us only. <laughs> I'll have to take a lemon and ginger tea. Uh, we've got a packed show for you today. Coming up on tonight's broadcast, we'll be talking about the Israeli hostages that have been released, as well as the Palestinian detainees who have started describing the conditions they were held in. Elon Musk visits Israel while also suing Sweden. Get you a guy who can do both. And we have a bizarre interview with a London mayoral candidate on LBC. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their pause in hostilities in Gaza for a further two days. Under the terms of the deal, Hamas will release a further 10 hostages each day, with Israel releasing 30 Palestinian detainees in exchange. The truce is delicate, with the risk that any infringement of its terms will result in a return to war. And earlier today, Hamas accused Israel of breaching the deal's terms, but said it was still committed to the truce. Meanwhile, Israel reported that three devices exploded near IDF troops in Gaza, with an IDF spokesperson reiterating the military's commitment to fighting when the truce ends. Of course, that reminded us the truce won't last forever. The US is already urging Israel to exercise constraint when it eventually moves its operations to southern Gaza, which is a bit like saying, please, while you're committing these war crimes, don't commit any war crimes. But even as the pause holds, the situation is tense and stakes are high. That is because the truce has brought huge relief to Palestinians living in the Strip, bringing a brief window of peace after seven weeks of siege and bombardment. In that time, of course, 15,000 Palestinians have been killed, including almost 6,000 children. And the full impact of Israel's assault on the territory, which may resume as soon as Thursday morning, is yet to be felt. According to the World Health Organization, disease may cause even more deaths in Gaza than Israel's bombs. That's after the Strip's healthcare system was eviscerated and fuel shortages meant that water sanitation plants could no longer operate. The ceasefire may also have brought a lull in hostilities, but it's given the world a better picture of the devastation wrought by Israel on Gaza. Repeated energy and telecommunications blackouts after Israel began its ground operation in the Strip meant that little information on the bombardment was able to escape the territory. That all changed when the bombs stopped falling and some of the 1.7 million Palestinians displaced by the assault began making the dangerous journey north. Mataz Azizia is a Palestinian journalist who's been documenting the daily lives of Palestinians during the siege. He posted this report from the Al-Nusrat refugee camp in central Gaza as the truce began. I want to show you this street in the Nusrat refugee camp. It contains like many of restaurants in the middle area. It got destroyed, all of it. So uh, even it's a bows, not a ceasefire, as they mentioned. Uh, yani the situation will remain worse and worse. Not going to be better than the days of the war. So yeah, here it is. That level of destruction appears to have been replicated across the Strip. This is Kuzair, a small town in the south of the territory. It sustained heavy bombing before the pause with homes and mosques destroyed. Also in the south, the city of Khan Yunus was repeatedly bombed. It's an area that many of the Palestinians from northern Gaza fled to when they were displaced by Israel's ground operation. Promised safety, all they found was more devastation. Some of the worst, worst of Israel's destruction was directed at Gaza City. The relentless bombing laid waste to homes, hospitals and universities. Even the city's only public library has been destroyed. 
Israel also repeatedly targeted the Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City, home to around 100 and 10,000 people before hostilities began. It's now in ruins. And this is Beit Hanun, a town near Gaza's northern border with Israel. It had a population of 53,000 before the bombardment. It too is now in ruins. Israel's attacks have destroyed and damaged around half of all buildings in northern Gaza, and it's created a territory of refugees, one where there no longer exists the infrastructure for them to return to. But according to Israeli MP Simha Rothman, whose religious Zionism party is part of the government coalition, that's someone else's fault. Here he is on the BBC. The majority of the population are refugees according to their own definition, according to UNRWA definition. So if there are refugees in Gaza, not outside of Gaza, in Gaza there are refugees, I think we should solve the problem of the refugees yeah, in Gaza they're, they're, they're the same way the world, they, the they, same they, way, please don't stop me in the middle of the sentence, please, please don't stop me in the middle of the sentence. The same well, way the You can the have a monologue for the next the 10 minutes if you want, but that's not going to be an no, interview, No, no, I'm trying, I'm trying to, to finish. Sorry. I'm interested in that word voluntary, uh, emigration. Um, you basically am, want Palestinians am, saying, out of Gaza, right? You call it voluntary, but I when am, people are leaving I, I am, under shell fire and under bombing with many thousands already dead, that's not voluntary. You just want them out. I am saying that since the majority of the population in Gaza are refugees according to their own definition and UNRWA definition, I think the world and the, and the UN entities that deals with refugees need to take care of them the same way and not continue the situation of refugees living for 75 years without a solution. I don't think anyone in his right mind should support it. And I think any refugee from Gaza who wants a solution shouldn't be held there by UNRWA for political reasons in order to hurt the state of Israel. See, I, and I that's the case. Ash, many Palestinians were already refugees within the occupied territory. What does this double displacement signify for their future? I think what this signifies for their future is the very real prospect of even more ethnic cleansing. And at the very least, I mean, this is how grim the best case scenario is, the best case scenario being an even more precipitous decline in living standards as the livable, habitable space of the Gaza Strip is shrunk by nearly half. So you already had the Gaza Strip being home to around 2.2 million people within a very, very narrow strip of land. It's already one of the most densely populated places on the face of the planet. That would be then squeezed into an even smaller nugget of land closer to Egypt. From the Israeli perspective, this worsening of conditions would hopefully encourage people to give up the dream of living in a Palestinian state. And of course, it's not like they can move to Israel and become Israeli citizens either. They don't have the right of return. So what they're hoping is that they'll go to Egypt, perhaps go to Jordan, and that eventually they'll simply give up their identity their homeland and their rights as Palestinian people. Um, one of the things which I think is important to point out is we've talked a lot about the destruction of civilian infrastructure, schools, universities, hospitals, roads, water, that kind of thing. 
But the tunnels, which are called Hamas tunnels for a reason, they're built either with the direct involvement or with the partnership of Hamas, they have always been a mix of military and civilian infrastructure. So ever since Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip and imposed a blockade in 2007, what that did was create a huge drop in the supply of food, fuel, and construction materials. The tunnel economy ended up being bigger than the so-called legitimate economy. And after the destruction of huge swathes of Gaza after the 2014 bombardment, had Palestinians been reliant only on what construction materials had made in through the official channels allowed in by Israel, it would have taken decades, if not over a century, to rebuild because of the flow of construction materials through the tunnel economy that was achieved in just a few short years. Now, this is something which has been done with kind of a nod and a wink and the tacit agreement of the Israeli government. The tunnel economy is one of the main ways in which Hamas receives its funding. It's a form of income for Hamas because goods move through, Hamas takes a cut of the profits. Now, the gamble that Netanyahu made was that these cash infusions through the tunnel economy would strengthen Hamas, deepen the divisions between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and therefore frustrate the possibility of a viable Palestinian state because there was no political unity. Now, I think one of the things that hasn't been spoken about very much is I don't think after October 7th that the Israeli government will have the same kind of lax attitude towards the tunnel economy. So if you've got no lifting of the blockade and you also have a much more aggressive approach from Israel with regards to the movement of goods through the tunnels, many of which may have been destroyed uh, over this last month and a bit of bombardment, you are, I think, looking at a very, very serious ongoing humanitarian crisis um, that even if Israel does restore electricity, water um, to the Gaza Strip, I think that this is a sort of slow moving crisis and disaster that's on the cards. Now, Hamas has released more than 50 Israeli hostages, as well as 17 Thai citizens and a Filipino person. But not many reports of their treatment have so far emerged, with most of the Israeli hostages still in Israel's hospitals. Describing their state, director of the Sheba Medical Center's Safra Children's Hospital said this. Some of them decided to stay longer in the hospital in order to cope with the event. We're also exposed to very difficult, painful, complex stories about captivity. Despite the optimistic appearance, the captivity period was difficult and complex, and it will take time for wounds to heal. Of course, I presume they're referring there specifically to the children captives, as that is a child's hospital's director. But of elderly captives as well have been released. 78-year-old Ruti Munda was taken by Hamas from near Oz Kibbutz along with her daughter and nine-year-old grandson. Her husband was also taken hostage and remains in Gaza while her son was killed in the attack. She has now given an interview to Israel's Channel 13 with ABC reporting this on what she said. 
Initially, they ate chicken with rice, all sorts of canned food and cheese, Munda told Channel 13 in an audio interview. We were okay. They were given tea in the morning and evening, and the children were given sweets. But the menu changed when the, quote, the economic, economic situation was not good and people were hungry. That article goes on to report this as well. Munda, confirming accounts from relatives of other freed captives, said they slept on plastic chairs. She said she covered herself with a sheet, but that not all captives had one. Boys who were there would stay up late chatting, while some of the girls would cry, she said. Some boys slept on the floor. She said she would wake up late to help. The room where she held was was suffocating, and the captives were prevented from opening the blinds, but she managed to crack open a window. It was very difficult, she said. A window underground, interesting. Presumably not underground after all. Hamas had also published a letter written by hostage Danielle Eloni, written in Hebrew on the day before her release. This letter was publicised by Hamas on a Telegram channel. Eloni and her daughter, Amelia, were taken into captivity on October 7th. These are some excerpts from the letter which her family have described as propaganda. For the generals who accompanied me in the past few weeks, it seems that we will part ways tomorrow, but I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your extraordinary humanity that you showed towards my daughter, Amelia. You were like parents to her, inviting her to your room whenever she wanted. She acknowledges the feeling that you are all not just friends, but true good-hearted loved ones. Children shouldn't be in war zones, but thanks to you and thanks to other kind people we met along the way, my daughter considers herself a queen in Gaza and in general she acknowledges the feeling of being in the centre of the world. We haven't met a person on our long journey from the military to the leadership who did not treat her with gentleness, care and love. I will forever be a captive of gratitude because she did not leave this place with a lasting psychological trauma. I remember your kind behaviour despite the difficult situation you are dealing with yourselves and the severe losses you suffered here in Gaza. I would take that letter with a severe amount of salt if I were you, which hopefully we'll be discussing in a minute. And at the same time, as Israeli hostages have been released, 150 Palestinian detainees have been freed too. Many of them were being kept in Israeli prisons under administrative detention, meaning they faced no formal charges and had not been tried in court. And as more are released, a clearer picture of the conditions under which Israel kept them has emerged. Former detainee Mara Burkir was taken into Israeli custody when she was just 15. Released after eight years, she said this. I am happy, but my liberation came at the price of the blood of the martyrs. I spent the end of my childhood and my adolescence in prison, far from my parents and their hugs. That's how it is with a state that oppresses us. Another released detainee, Maisun al-Jabali, said this. I spent nine years in the occupation prison. We were beaten and starved. The situation is difficult. There is a lot of harassment, shameful searches, no food. Imagine the food that was enough for 10 people was distributed to 80 girls. Anoma Shoki was just 15 years old when he was detained two years ago. He said this upon his release. There are many children in the occupation prisons between the ages of 13 and 15 who have been living in very difficult conditions since the outbreak of the wars. There remain nearly 7,000 Palestinians held captive in Israeli prisons and almost to a person for every detainee that's been released, another person has been arrested in the West Bank. But Ash, I want to talk about this letter from a Hamas hostage. We should treat this sceptically, right? If we heard that coming from the IDF, we would be raising every eyebrow possible. 
I think that it would be very wise to treat that letter skeptically. So number one, we don't know what the circumstances of this letter being written were. We don't know if it was coerced. We don't know if it was under duress. We don't know if it was dictated. We don't know whether this was something that was freely written. But within the very complex and traumatic and frightening circumstances of being a hostage. So I'm not going to, you know, sit here and presume that I've got a wealth of knowledge at my fingertips about what that experience is like, but it is a well-recorded phenomena that people who are held captive or who are hostages can sometimes feel very, very warmly towards those individuals within those circumstances who show them kindness because the stakes are very, very high. Lives are on the line. And when someone is taking care of your basic needs within that, there can be an immense feeling of gratitude. And that's an adaptive mechanism because this is a person upon whom your survival depends. So you work overtime to ingratiate yourself um, to form an empathetic human bond with them because you literally need them on your side if you want to live. So I wouldn't t take a letter like this, where, like I said, we don't know what the circumstances of it being written were and say, this means that Hamas treated all of its captives very well. Now, as me and Michael discussed last night, there are certain incentives when it comes to hostage taking which discourage gratuitous abuse. But those incentives are not a cast iron promise that no abuses will take place. Um, the hostages that were taken into Gaza, some were held by Hamas, others were held by other militant groups, and also the structuring of Hamas into cells. And I don't know, but I would presume that not all of the hostages were kept in the one location in Gaza. You don't know how different captors will behave. You don't know what the orders were. You don't know if all of those orders were listened to or carried out. Because I know that there is a temptation, particularly when the media coverage of Hamas is to present them as a kind of unknowable evil. There's nothing here to understand. It doesn't really matter what they've done or haven't done because it's pure evil. So there's no point quibbling over the details. Evil, evil, evil. In the face of that kind of very inaccurate media coverage, it's tempting to want to overcorrect and then point at sort of you know, cherry-picked moments or bits of evidence to go, oh, well, like, these these guys aren't so bad. But I think that it risks playing into, I think, bad journalism, really, because it means that you're taking things out of context, not thinking skeptically about it, and trying to hold it up to um, form a, a complete narrative from it. Whereas I think the thing I'm saying is that you simply can't form a complete narrative of this. You can only know what you don't know and keep those gaps in your knowledge in mind before you try and say, well, this proves that all of the captives held by Hamas were well-treated because that's certainly not a statement you can accurately make. Yes, and I suppose it also plays into this idea that 
we have to attach this, you know, moral purity to everything that happens in order to legitimize what is already legitimized, you know, the, the Palestinian liberation struggle. It's, all, it's already legitimate enough. We don't need to attach this moral purity to Hamas's treatment of hostages, hostages, hostages in order to make that something that is worth backing, that is the correct, you know, political position to back, that is the correct struggle to get behind. It's, it's an occupied nation, it's an occupied territory, it's a people completely oppressed, it's an apartheid regime. We don't have to pretend that hostages were treated well in order for that to remain the facts. Um, and I also just want to touch on something you said there, Ash, about, you know, these incentives, because I think you've talked a lot as well, previous shows of Navarro Live that people hopefully will have been lucky enough to catch about this difference between calling uh, prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, prisoners and Israeli hostages, hostages, which is the terms we're using for shorthand here, really, because that's how we've been referring to them in most media and people know what we mean. But this idea that if you're a hostage, there are incentives there to treat you perhaps better. Um, there's also this idea that there might be a short-term, uh, temporary nature of your confinement, even though that doesn't bear out in somewhere like, you know, the hostages that we've seen in other countries that have gone on, stretched on for decades even. Um, but in this situation, I suppose that hostage label might carry that incentive of more humanity compared to the treatment that we heard about there that the released Palestinian detainees were discussing that they underwent in Israeli prisons. I don't know what you think about that. So this is a really difficult one because I also don't want to cherry pick and then extend it to one narrative about how the hostages were treated. We simply don't have enough information to know that. I think the only thing that you can say is that when you do hear accounts from hostages saying, look, we weren't gratuitously abused, we were fed, there were no beatings, that makes sense in terms of what Hamas want to do is use high-value captives in order to extract certain concessions from Israel, whether that's a prisoner exchange or whether it's a ceasefire or whether it's aid being able to move across the border, whatever. The, there is an incentive for treating captives well because you need them healthy and alive in order for them to have value. And also if they're released and they're saying, look, we weren't treated badly, that's a PR coup for Hamas. However, when you're dealing with a militant group whose fighters, I mean, one, in order to commit any act of violence, I think there's a degree of having to dehumanize your opponents, dehumanize your victims, dehumanize the people that you're enacting violence on. I mean, that's a huge part of the kind of conditioning that goes in, that goes on in any military of any nation state around the world. You have to be able to see your enemy as less than human. And then the second thing on top of that is that if you're a Hamas fighter and you were born and you were raised in the Gaza Strip, you're also probably pretty fucking traumatized by the experience of growing up in what is effectively the world's largest concentration camp, where the conditions of deprivation are then made worse every year or two because your land is being bombed. So those are things which I think you also have to factor in, which is that if 
if it does emerge that there have been cases of gratuitous abuse, it's not that it's either or. It's not that it's you either accept that some captives were well treated or you accept that some captives were victims of gratuitous abuse. I think you can look at the situation and say this spectrum of behaviours makes sense in the circumstances. That's not the same as condoning. That's not the same as agreeing with. But you're saying this is something which is within the realm of possibility and it's an explanation which feels grounded in reality rather than something which doesn't, I think, feel grounded in reality, which is the idea that, you know, these people are like genetically predisposed to being bloodthirsty and monstrous and there can never be peace between Palestinians and Israelis. No, I think I think you have to look at the material conditions that have led to the emergence and the formation and the strengthening of Hamas. And you have to look at the different ways, um, different countervailing pressures and incentives will play out amongst Hamas fighters. The reason that hostage treatment might also differ is that Hamas aren't actually holding all the hostages. Intelligence then suggests that Islamic Jihad is responsible currently for about 40 hostages that Hamas say they don't know where they are, and a further 10 from the total that were given to uh, the Israeli forces seem to be missing completely. No one knows who actually has control of those hostages. So treatment between them will differentiate greatly. Before our next story, I want to talk to you about something important. Having really great, pluralistic, left-wing journalism that challenges the status quo is, in my opinion, something worth funding. Navara Media isn't reliant on flaky or fragile funding models. We are powered by people, people like you, who trust our journalism and value what we do. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you. Let's go on to our next story. Elon Musk is on an appeasement tour after endorsing an anti-Semitic post on X earlier this month, and that tour has taken him to Israel. Footage was released on Monday of Musk touring a kibbutz that was destroyed in the 7th of October attacks by Hamas. He wasn't alone. The Tesla owner was joined by Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, as they visited Kfar Asa, where dozens were killed last month. Musk snapped phone pics as the contingent viewed wrecked buildings. Later, Musk held a space on X, which means an online listening event, with Netanyahu. Musk said it had been, quote, jarring to see the scene of the massacre and that he was disturbed by footage Netanyahu had shown him of the attacks. He also gave his approval to Israel's destruction of Gaza in the name of pursuing Hamas. This is what Musk said. Those that are intent on murder must be neutralised. The propaganda must stop that is training people to be murderers in the future and then making Gaza prosperous. And if that happens, I think it will be a good future. In response, Netanyahu said he hoped Musk would be, quote, involved in that future, by which he presumably means on the side of the Israeli state. The fruits of Israel's courting of Musk were immediately apparent after his visit because in late October, Israel imposed a communications blackout on Gaza amid its bombardment campaign. 
At the time, Musk said that his satellite internet network, Starlink, would provide connectivity to, quote, internationally recognized aid organizations in Gaza. Now, this didn't happen because Elon Musk is the king of unfulfilled promises, but it did make Israel's communications minister very angry. Following Musk's visit to Israel, however, he is singing a different tune. Shlomo Kahi posted on X that Musk and the Israeli government had reached an agreement. Elon Musk, I congratulate you for reaching a principal understanding with the Ministry of Communications under my leadership. As a result of this significant agreement, Starlink satellite units can only be operated in Israel with the approval of the Israeli Ministry of Communications, including the Gaza Strip. Musk also met with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, and some of the families of Israeli citizens still being held hostage in Gaza. The Israeli president's office released a statement after the meeting claiming Musk, claiming Herzog had asked Musk to tackle online anti-Semitism. Herzog apparently told the ex-owner this. Unfortunately, we are inundated with anti-Semitism, which is hatred of Jews. I think we need to fight this together because the platform you lead, unfortunately, has a large reservoir of hatred hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism. None of Musk's meetings with the Israeli officials publicly reported discussion of the context behind this visit, though, which is that his social media platform X is hemorrhaging advertisers after Musk co-signed an anti-Semitic post. This is a tweet posted on the 15th of November. Okay, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realisation that those hordes of minorities that support that flooding their country don't exactly like them too much. You want the truth said to your face? There it is. For those of you who don't know what that means, that is uh, the repetition of a very very popular... um, a widely spread anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that claims that Jewish people are trying to parachute in minorities to replace original populations. It's just the great replacement theory with a little extra addition and seasoning. Now, this was Musk's reply. You have said the actual truth. Right. Obviously, a completely nonsense anti-Semitic conspiracy theory there. Um, And since that happened, since that exchange, Musk has been admonished by the US government and advertisers, including Apple, Disney, Coca-Cola, who have reportedly all removed their paid ads from X. According to the New York Times, this could remove up to $75 million in revenue from X. By their estimates, since Musk's takeover, 90% of the platform's ad revenue has been pulled, which is money X really, really needs, given the $13 billion it carries in debt. Musk may have been welcomed with open arms by Benjamin Netanyahu, but others weren't so happy. This is from an opinion piece published in Haaretz by political analyst David Rothkopf. By publicly embracing Elon Musk, the Netanyahu government is not only sending a message that it values political support for its agenda above Israel's core historical mission to provide a haven for the Jewish people from lethal anti-Semitism. One by one, Netanyahu and his courtiers have reached out to some of the world's most prominent Jew haters, offering them absolution for their sins and Israel's official license to carry on. By taking Musk to the scene of the Hamas massacres, he is also expropriating Jewish suffering to whitewash his anti-Semitism and his promotion of other anti-Semites on his website. Rothkopf cites Vladimir Putin, Viktor Orban, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and Donald Trump, among other examples of those who've been welcomed by Netanyahu. I want to read some more of what Rothkopf says because I think it's valuable. 
For many years, the Netanyahu camp and the right-wing Jewish allies have pushed the idea that the only good Jew is one who supports their agenda while condemning the many millions of Jews who do not share their toxic politics. Call out Israeli policies for their institutional racism and systematic abuse of Palestinians, utter the A-word, and you'll be accused of being an anti-Semite, no matter if you're a rabbi, a Holocaust survivor, or a plain old New York liberal Jew. Dare suggest that Israel's claim to statehood necessitate the same right for Palestinians, and you face the modern equivalent of excommunication. Yet, while Jews who condemn the racism and brutality of the Likud-led government are condemned monstrous serial spreaders of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and white supremacist hate speech are able to claim some of my best friends of Israel government officials, even as they continue to enable, amplify, platform, and actively support people spreading the very lies and bigoted positions that fuel the catastrophe that made the foundation of the Jewish state a necessity. It is beyond twisted, it is evil, that Netanyahu would think it appropriate to flaunt this policy in the midst of the war in Gaza is particularly repulsive. Absolutely blistering takedown there. And David Rothkopf, as you might have guessed, isn't a rabid lefty either. He's a dyed-in-the-wool liberal who served in Clinton administrations and worked for Henry Kissinger. Yeah, he is able to see the wood for the trees. Ash, it's interesting to see that Musk, a business owner, is making the kind of visit that diplomats usually do. What does this say about the role tech lords have in geopolitical relations now? So I think that there's two things going on. One is that tech CEOs very often have ambitions of performing on the world stage and having roles which include political power as well as being you know, fantastically wealthy and controlling communications infrastructure. It was rumored that Mark Zuckerberg wanted to you know, make a run for president. So Elon Musk doing this sort of diplomatic visit, it's not out of the ordinary when you consider the behavior of tech CEOs. The second half of that equation is, of course, Israel and Israeli uh, PR interests. It is incredibly strategic for them to cultivate close relationships with tech CEOs who control communications infrastructure. And Twitter, which I refuse to call X, is particularly important. As you've written very cogently and insightfully, Moya, even though Twitter doesn't have a massive user base and has far fewer daily users than platforms such as Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, it has an outsized role in helping determine the news and current affairs agenda. Twitter is a place where we've had Palestinian journalists and Palestinian citizen journalists sharing accounts of what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank during this war and sharing images and footage of what the IDF has been getting up to. Now, that has been part of the backlash against Israel's bombardment of Gaza that Israel really wants to manage and contain because, of course, they're only able to do what they are doing with regards to the wholesale oppression of the Palestinian people because of the international support that they have. And that international support, those Western governments such as our own, such as the United States, while there's a big gap between public opinion and what governments are doing, it doesn't mean that governments are immune from big shifts of public opinion. So that is definitely something that Israel is interested in managing. Um, one of the strategies of 
Israel and its advocates worldwide is to push a definition of anti-Semitism, which isn't looking at the more historic ways in which anti-Semitism has played out. The tropes of Jewish people controlling um, finances of puppeteering governments, they're not really so interested in that. What they want to do is establish a definition of anti-Semitism, which basically means anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. Bob's your uncle. Now, I think that this does something quite particular with the case of Elon Musk, because I think that it ties in to the kind of white nationalist politics that he's been flirting with for the past few years now. Because one, white nationalists look at the state of Israel as justifying their own interest in ethno-nationalism. What they see is a muscular state imposing apartheid, breaking international law, making it very clear that what they're interested in is total demographic dominance of the land between the river and the sea. And white nationalists go, yeah, great, so do we. The second thing is that there is such a thing as an anti-Semitic Zionist. So many of the members of Balfour's cabinet who issued the Balfour Declaration uh, early in the 20th century were anti-Semites themselves. Their idea was, okay, well, if we give them this land, we don't really care about the Arabs who are living there. Well, it gets rid of our problem, which is Jews living in the diaspora of Europe. And I think in terms of anti-Semitic Zionists, you could also include some pretty big chunks of the evangelical movement in the United States who believe that once you get all of the Jewish people in the Holy Land, well, that's when the rapture is going to come and, you know, I think Jesus lifts you up in his big spaceship or whatever it is. I'm not actually a student of scripture. Um, and then I think there's also two more elements of, of why Israel has this kind of symbiotic relationship with white nationalism. One is that it it's easy for people with very right-wing politics to project a clash of civilizations narrative onto Israel and Palestine. So rather than looking at it as what it is, which is you've got a settler colony and you've got a dispossessed, marginalized and oppressed peoples who are living under occupation. It's sort of folded into a narrative of Islam versus the West, even though when you look carefully at the history, that is just not what it is at all. And then you've got how it plays out, not just in Israel and Palestine, but how it plays out on the streets in Europe and in America. It allows you to play a game of what I like to call good ethnicity, bad ethnicity. So the good ethnicity, in this case, Jewish people, and the key part here is Jewish people who are pro-Israel, because if you're a Jewish person and you're not pro-Israel, or you're critical of the Netanyahu government, you're a self-loathing Jew, you're a fake Jew, you're a bad Jew. Um, suddenly, you're one of the Jews who want to do the great replacement rather than the new Jew who is sort of muscularly uh, fending off Islam, you know, with a powerful right hook. Um, but it's good ethnicity, bad ethnicity. Good ethnicity being pro-Israeli Jews, bad ethnicity being predominantly Muslims, but also um, any ethnic minority who who is broadly in solidarity 
with the Palestinian cause. Now, here's the thing about the game of good ethnicity, bad ethnicity. And this is what makes it so very exciting is that just because you're a good ethnicity in one context doesn't mean you're always going to be the good ethnicity. So don't worry, South Asians, if you're sick of being the bad ethnicity when it comes to Israel and Palestine, you can be the good ethnicity when it's time to, you know, basically dick on black people and say, oh, well, like these lot are criminal and they don't work hard. Whereas look at you, South Asians, you know, you've got the work ethic and, and you know, you're good and you're quiet and you're meek. That if, you know, you're listening to that and you're black and you go, well, that sounds shit. I'm always the bad ethnicity. Don't worry. When it comes to Islamophobia, if you're, of course, black and you're not Muslim, then you get to be the good ethnicity who's integrated and you share Western values and the South Asians, particularly if they're Muslim, are the bad ethnicity again, because we don't integrate. Um, so, yes, that has been my introduction to the game of good ethnicity, bad ethnicity. Thank you for playing, Moya. Hmm, I feel like we're all losers in that game somehow. But oh well, <laughs> let's go on to our next story. Elon Musk is suing Sweden. Yes, you heard that right. Why? Because Musk's electric car company, Tesla, is locked in a labour conflict with Swedish workers, and the outcome could threaten the labour rights framework of one of the most unionised countries in the world. To understand why Tesla has lodged a lawsuit against two Swedish state services, we need to go back to the beginning. This is a piece published today by Navarra Media's labour correspondent, Polly Smythe. Polly's been reporting on the attempts to unionise by around 120 Tesla mechanics in Sweden. Now, Tesla famously refuses to enter collective bargaining agreements with its workers, which has proved particularly contentious in Sweden, where nine out of ten employees are covered by such agreements. From Polly's report, while Tesla doesn't manufacture its electric cars in Sweden, mechanics service the cars in workshops across the country. Since 2018, IF Metal, the trade union representing the mechanics, has been calling on the automaker to sign a collective bargaining agreement to cover its members. Tesla has refused to cooperate, and on the 27th of October, the union launched strike action. These mechanics are not striking alone, though. In Sweden, working conditions and wages are decided through agreements between employers and unions, not via legislation. Because of Tesla's refusal to sign up to such an agreement, Polly writes, the mechanics are excluded from the sector-wide standards set by IF Metal's motor industry deal. IF Metal says, quote, Tesla employees earn lower wages, have poor insurance cover, and worse pension contributions. Because of this... Other Swedish trade unions think Tesla could put the Swedish labour model in danger. And in Sweden, solidarity strikes are allowed, which means a lot of other workers have joined the mechanics strike. Polly writes this. The Swedish Transport Workers Union launched a blockade on the 7th of November, refusing to load or unload Tesla cars at ports in Malmö, Soldataja, Gothenburg and Trelleborg. On the 17th of November, the blockade expanded to a further 55 ports. The same day, the Swedish Building Maintenance Workers Union, Fastigets, stopped cleaning Tesla showrooms. Cleaners and dock workers have also been joined by painters and decorators who are refusing to work on Tesla vehicles and chargers. And on the 20th of November, Swedish postal workers joined the secondary strike action. Their union, SECO, announced workers would block the distribution, delivery and collection of mail headed to Tesla workplaces. It's this action that prompted Musk to head to the courts and he scored an initial victory. On Monday, Tesla filed lawsuits against the Swedish transport agency 
and the National Postal Services for their refusal to deliver Tesla number plates. An interim judgment from the court ruled that Tesla had to be allowed to collect the number plates from the transport agency's office within seven days. A decision on the suit against the Postal Service has yet to be made. According to union leaders, this is a labour battle that goes way beyond Tesla. This is what IF Metal chief Marie Nilsson told the Financial Times this week. If Tesla shows it's possible to operate in Sweden without a collective agreement, then other companies could be tempted to do the same. We have a very successful model in Sweden. We've tried to explain it. It's very seldom this type of conflict arises. And the fight looks to carry on. Nilsson said they have enough funds to support striking workers for, quote, decades. Ash, will the Swedish labour model prevail? Well, I certainly hope that they do. I'd have to look into the exact nature of Elon Musk's lawsuit and what grounds he's invoking. It might just be complete horseshit because, of course, if you've got endless amounts of money, you can do, uh, you know, what what's often called vexatious litigation, where you're just wasting um, the resources of you know, the Swedish taxpayer because you can, even if your case doesn't have particularly strong grounds. So without knowing what those grounds are, that's not really a bit that I can comment on. The thing which I think is really important is that the fact that Swedish trade unions are allowed to do solidarity strikes shows you how scared other nations are of that tactic. And that's why we've banned it here in the UK. Um, Solidarity strikes mean that you know, you can't isolate one bit of the workforce and treat them like shit because people are able to act as a class using the power of organized labor. And so even if you're a workforce that isn't necessarily working what you might call a choke point of capital, which is very often things like logistics, um, agriculture, um, energy, that kind of thing, industries, which in turn support the work of many other industries. If you're not in those choke point key industries, it is sometimes hard to feel like you've got leverage and you can force governments or bosses, corporations to the negotiating table. Um, But with a solidarity strike, it means that people who do work in those other key sectors can either bring the country or the region to a standstill or impact a corporation's other operations by going on a solidarity strike. So it's a very powerful uh, use of organized labor. And that's precisely why we're not allowed to do it here in the UK. So all power to the Swedish workers. Very interested in seeing how this plays out. I'm interested too, partly because I want to see someone finally hold the world's most bankrupt billionaire, and I mean that in every sense of the word, uh, to as much of an account as he can be. You know, my pet peeve, regular viewers will know my pet peeve about Elon Musk. That is not a man who has any money. It's all an illusion. (laughs) You caught it here first before Gary cuts me off. Let's go on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has something he wants to celebrate. Right now, something very exciting is happening in the sky above us. It all started with a government competition to support the industry to achieve the first net-zero transatlantic flight on an aircraft using 100% sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. Our government made up to a million pounds of funding available to support the project, 
and right now it's taking off. Today's Virgin Atlantic flight to New York will be entirely fueled by SAF, made primarily from waste oils and fats. Not only will SAF be key in decarbonizing aviation, but it could create a UK industry with an annual turnover of almost two and a half billion pounds, which could support over 5,000 UK jobs. It's great that British businesses and institutions like Virgin Atlantic, Rolls-Royce, Boeing and Sheffield University continue to raise the bar in aviation. Now that is Blue Sky Thinking. Ugh, blue sky thinking. I hate it, I hate it. Is it blue sky thinking? Or as our producer Alex has said, hogwashing. That Virgin Atlantic flight from London to New York was apparently powered entirely by fuel made from waste oils and animal fats. In an article in The Conversation, economists Gareth Dale and Josh Moose, great name, pour cold water on the claim that it's sustainable, writing this. Surely reusing cooking oils offers a sustainable solution. Unfortunately, in a notoriously unregulated market, it seems not. Another of Virgin suppliers, Neste, collects cooking oils from sources worldwide, including McDonald's restaurants in the Netherlands and food processing plants in California, Oregon and Washington. The US Department of Agriculture alleges that some trade in SAF feedstocks, including from Indonesia to Neste's refinery in Singapore, may be, quote, fraudulent. Neste has denied the claim, but even if its use cooking oil is entirely, even if its use of cooking oil is entirely legitimate, there is still an allegation that palm oil from plantations responsible for tropical deforestation is being marketed as used cooking oil. They go on to say this. Virgin Atlantic maintains that the SAF it uses is entirely from used cooking oil. However, if the aviation industry bets big on used cooking oil, it is feared it will turbocharge tropical logging and the extermination of the orangutan and countless other endangered species. The real kicker is that even if all used cooking oils were traceable and sustainably sourced, they're not scalable. The US collects around 600,000 tons of used cooking oil each year. If every last drop was diverted to SAFs, it would meet at most... 1% of America's current aviation demand. It's just another example of a massive corporation, not to mention this whole country, taking the keep calm and carry on approach to large scale climate breakdown. But what's really needed is widespread systemic change. Perhaps a better place to start is with the rich. This is from The Guardian last week. According to the report, private jets belonging to just 200 celebrities, CEOs, oligarchs and billionaires, that's a collection of rich people, have spent a combined total of 11 years in the air since the start of 2022. And in less than two years, those 200 people have made the equivalent of nearly 45,000 journeys. Their emissions are equivalent to that of 40,000 Britons. So instead of pretending that used chip fat is going to save the world, why don't we start by putting an end to this gross overconsumption and maybe just billionaires in general? Um, also, hilarious. How many words we have for rich people? Now, Rishi Sunak's video isn't the only one focused on climate change, but while Sunak's is strictly in the realm of fantasy, Richard Curtis, director of <laughs> films like Love Actually, has taken a more realistic approach. Hello, my name is Oblivia Colwine. And on behalf of the fossil fuel industries, I would like to say a huge thank you for all your support this bumper year. People like you have pumped billions of your hard-earned pounds into our gas and oil businesses. The cash from your pensions 
has helped us dig, drill and destroy more of the planet than ever before. We've even managed to build a few little wind turbines to keep Greta and her chums happy. <laughs> Cute. You see, every little drop from your precious nest egg adds up. So while the global temperature may go up a teensy-weensy degree or two, our profits are literally soaring. And that's all thanks to you. So to guarantee us all a warmer, snugglier future, please keep sending your pensions our way. You know the drill. Oh, fracking hell. Wow, Olivia Coleman is serving in that ad. Ash, cultural figures Academy taking on a quiet... Award. <laughs> she's, she's serving. I mean, like, the look is fantastic. And the acting, anyway. Um, Ash, cultural figures like Olivia Coleman, Richard Curtis, taking on climate change <laughs> while our government fiddles. Is this the norm? Do we see cultural change before we usually see political change? Or are we doing everything backwards? I think that this has very often been a part of cultural change. I mean, one of my favorite Hollywood facts is that Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor were incredibly supportive of the Black Panther Party. Um, you think about Jane Fonda, nicknamed Hanoi Jane, for her support uh, for the anti-war movement, her criticism of American imperialism. So I think you've always had this element of people who uh you know work in the culture industry using the platforms that they have to try and push for some kind of political or social change um, marlon brando uh sending sashin littlefeather to accept his academy award for him another example of people using the platforms that they have i think what's interesting about this is that it's not simply an actor using the platform that they have in terms of you know an awards acceptance speech or giving an interview, but making content which explains an aspect of how fossil fuel capitalism works. And I think that that's the thing which is quite telling because our political class and much of our journalistic class, though I do think that is changing in places, they have their head in the sand about this. They don't want to acknowledge the scale of the crisis. They don't want to acknowledge the sheer uh, complexity, the naughtiness of how much our economic system is bound up with and dependent on fossil fuels and doesn't want to take on the difficult task of either trying to tackle it, if you're a politician, or explaining it, if you're a journalist. So you've got people who have a platform. Olivia Coleman knows that we would watch her unwrapping an Easter egg and they can hold our attention and they're doing the exact kind of work that people in power ought to, which is exposing the realities of, you know, a, an economic model, which is on its way to e ecological collapse and sort of telling us what we should be doing about it. So I think it exposes a, a particular weakness, complacency, even recklessness amongst our political leadership that has fallen to Olivia Coleman, divine though she is, to relay this kind of information. Let's go on to our final story. Susan Hall is the Tory candidate for London mayor. She's also been the victim of a horrific crime. Speaking to LBC's Nick Ferrari, Hall laid out exactly what happened. 
Well, I have to tell you, I'm the luckiest woman in the world because I actually got it back. But um, I just did a normal journey. And same thing with lots of people that are pickpocketed or whatever. You just get to the end of your journey and realise that you don't have your uh, oyster or your pass or whatever. Uh, and that's that's what happened to me. And I had no idea where it could have gone. I have very, very deep pockets in my uh, winter coat, which I keep it in, or I kept it in. I will never do that again. I'll lock it in my handbag. Um, it wasn't there. I had had on one of the trains that I went on, somebody was fiddling around beside me and pushing and shoving, and I'd assumed that that's where it had gone. But um, when I got home, because in my um, Oyster card holder, I've also got my um, business card. Somebody phoned me and said he'd seen somebody sitting on it. Um, most odd. Um, he'd asked him if it was his. I know. I know. I, I just don't get it. Um, uh, asked him if it was his. He said, no, it wasn't. So he said, well, give it to me. So the chap took it right. and saw my number. So I'm very, very lucky. So just to get this straight, Susan Hall has been described by LBC as the victim of a pickpocket but somehow the pickpocket ended up sitting on her purse and then someone returned it to her. I really hope you're coping, Susan. At that point, Detective Nick Ferrari wanted a bit more detail. Where did you board the tube and where were you going? Westminster, back to Pinner. So Jubilee Line and then on to the Metropolitan Line. What sort of time of day was it? Oh, um, this was mid-afternoon. How crowded was the tube carriage? Uh, not not like it is in the morning. I mean, it was people were standing, but. Uh, um, and you get home, presumably, or oh no, you go to get your oyster, presumably, to get off the yes. train. That's when you. So you go to get, well, you get off the train, you get to the barrier, and suddenly you realise you've been robbed. Well, you realise it's not where it was, and uh, you have no idea what's happened. And I mean, obviously, doing what I do, I know just how bad people pocketing is on the underground it was the highest year ever last year i was so cross with myself nick because i thought you know i i should lock these things away in my mm. handbag and i certainly will in future and i hope anybody listening does do that put it where you know with a zipper uh, over the so, top so it can't be just taken out of the pocket so so what time was the journey where were you sitting <laughs> No, we should take this very seriously. And that is sound advice. Put your purse in your handbag and zip it up so you don't leave it on the seat next to someone for you for them to sit on. Still, a close call. Wait till you hear what Hall actually had in her precious purse. So, Susan, you have your purse back minus what? Your Oyster card and your credit cards and cash? What, what's gone? No, no, I don't keep credit cards in there. Oh, it's right. just literally the Oyster card and a business card or a couple of business cards I keep in there. Right. So I'm very, very lucky, unlike many others. I'm, so I the mean, Oyster card's know. gone and your cash has gone? No, the Oyster card was still in there. Oh, you've got so everything. I, don't, I only keep the Oyster card I in see. there. And the cash was still um, in there? Uh, there was some cash in there and that was still there. So this is all credit to the bloke who saw what was going on and said, "Oi, is that your purse or whatever?" Well, he he saw it. I wasn't there. No, of course. So, um, I the answer is I have no idea. Okay. Yes, <laughs> the answer is that you still have no idea. Uh, 
I'm sorry. Okay, you know what? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, still, Nick Ferrari had a burning question for that mayoral candidate. Let's put this into a political aspect. What does this mean for crime for the regular Londoner trying to go about his or her job, trying to ride the underground or the bus or indeed an overground train? And what does it mean for what you might bring to the dynamic were you to be successful next year? Well, we've got to look at it. Um, in Sneak Carnes, London, thefts are up 31%, robberies are up 58%. Last year was the highest year for pickpocketing on the underground. So I'd say to your listeners, please, please just make sure you keep everything very safe. I was furious with myself uh, that, it, that it had gone state of Sadiq Khan's London, where people will make a real effort to return your lost property to you when it falls out of your pocket on a train. Just want to take a second as well. Susan Hall had her property returned straight to her. I had to pay £5 when I left my wallet <laughs> on London, London TFL trains. Because if you lose your wallet on TFL and it gets handed into a TFL thing, they charge you money. Susan Hall actually didn't get robbed by Sadiq Khan's London. I got robbed by Sadiq Khan's London. You were TFL. robbed by Sadiq Khan's I'm London. The real, I'm the real victim in this. Ash, what do you make of this incredible microcosm of a more... I felt like I was tripping watching that. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, about? it was sort of... It, it was kind of amazing. It's like you learn of an event and then through this sort of wonderfully woven narrative, you realize that no event took place at all. So it's kind of like there's something Christopher Nolan-esque about it. It's like you go to see a movie and the real twist is that there is no movie. You know, no, there is know no what? plot. There is no story. Nothing happened. I watched Barry Lyndon at the weekend by Stanley Kubrick. And it sort of reminded me of that, all Football Factory, two films in which I would say there's no... I mean, Barry Lyndon has more of a character, but Football Factory, which stars Danny Dyer, um, <laughs> the one about the football hooligans in Millwall, has absolutely no character arc. Characters are exactly the same, apart from the ones that have died at the beginning as they are at the end. It ends, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but ends in exactly the same position, almost... Nothing happens despite a couple of events. That was Susan Hall telling the story of how she left her wallet on the tube and got it returned to her soon afterwards. Amazing. I don't want I don't want anyone to yell at me, but you know what it kind of reminds me of? Like, it reminds me a bit of Virginia Woolf novels and then also novels which are about Virginia Woolf novels like The Hours because it's sort of like a woman's walking around and something nearly happens but it doesn't quite but she still feels really fucking anxious about it and that's the whole novel. Susan Hall, God bless her, has either by accident or by design created a modernist masterpiece and for that, chapeau. Chapeau indeed. We also showed there that your reference point is Virginia Woolf and my reference point is the Danny Dyer 2004 Masterpiece Football Factory. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and, and read some more literature. Um, maybe, maybe I can't think of any other novelist apart from Virginia Woolf. I'm fucked. <laughs> maybe I'll just watch Football Factory. <laughs> you don't watch Football Factory. Don't watch Barry Lyndon either. God's not Kubrick's best, I'll say that. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. As we've been talking about in the chat, I've heard Barnaby is back on Thursday too. For now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.